0: It is a good weekend. It's a, it's a bit of a somber weekend because yesterday, obviously, was the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and uh, we, we take that time to remember all the victims and the heroes that, uh, that happened, that they were part of that day. Uh, if you're old enough to remember that day, I'm sure you know exactly where you were and exactly what you were doing. You probably remember what you were wearing that day because it was a, uh, one of the most memorable days for all the wrong reasons that we've had in the history of this nation. I know for me, yesterday, I had a, just had a heavy heart all day, um, then I watched a documentary last night about it, it made my heart even heavier. But uh, you know, it's good that we remember. We don't want to ever forget what, what had happened. But um, I'm thankful because I know God was faithful through it, he's been good to us. And uh, so uh, we continue to press forward, trusting him. Um, I hope you came today with an expectancy. I hope you came today uh, believing that, that God can be more in your life. That Jesus can can fill you to overflowing with His Spirit and be everything you need Him to be. I, I hope you came with that expectancy. If you didn't today, it's okay. If you're struggling, I'm I'm glad you're here because when we're struggling, there's no better place to be than with a community of believers, and in the house of the Lord. So I'm glad you're here today too. But uh, we are in the middle of a series that we are doing for the month of September. It's called "Who Told You That?" And we're talking about the lies that we believe as Christians, and uh, kicked it off last week, and continuing this week. And as I said last week, and I'm really excited about this series because I feel like there are so many lies that we can so easily believe even as followers of Jesus. Um, and you would, some of us might mistakenly think, well, since I follow Jesus, that I'm not susceptible to the lies. Uh, that would be a mistake because in some ways we're more susceptible because we have a target on our back when we become followers of Jesus. And sometimes it's so hard to, to even decipher the lies in our life because they can be packaged so neatly. You know, even spiritually, there's a lot of there's a lot of half truths. You know, and that's that's what really gets us is that we we find these truths, but they're just a little bit off, and it's just enough off to derail us, but not enough off to keep us from rejecting it. And so we we have to deal with those in our life. Or sometimes there's just lies that we deal with that we just really would rather believe the lie than the truth because the lie appeases us temporarily in our insecurities. You know, your insecurities will put or make you more in danger of deception than almost anything else in your life. Insecurities will do a lot to harm us even in our faith. And as I said last week, I believe we as Christians should always be asking the Lord to show us if we're deceived. Because the thing about being deceived is you don't know you're deceived because you're deceived. <laughs> Makes sense, right? And we should always be asking God because we don't have to do this on our own. We have the Holy Spirit to reveal to us if we are deceived. You know, David ask God to show me my heart. He said, search my heart, oh God. We should be doing that all the time. God forbid that we would stand here thinking, well, I've got it all figured out. I know this thing cover to cover, and I know every interpretation of it, and I know exactly what needs to be known. None of us do, right? We're all susceptible and vulnerable at times to deception in our life. And deception is dangerous because it can cause great regret, even in our spiritual life, but even in regular life as well, right? In fact, if you're a child of the 80s or 90s as I am, uh, you were deceived into believing that mullets looked good. And for girls, you were deceived into believing big hair looked good. Or that parachute pants looked awesome. Or leg warmers in public was a great idea. Right? And because of that deception, we have regret because they had cameras back then. And sometimes those pictures resurface. In fact, I, I shared with the youth a couple about a month and a half ago, and I actually showed my senior picture, and in my senior picture, I have a mullet. That's the worst thing that you could ever have. Uh, but I decided it would give them a good laugh, and so I did it anyway. But you know, we have regret when we're deceived, but there's more than just that kind of deception. There's the deception in our faith that can be very, very dangerous. Very dangerous. In fact, deception in faith is what causes people to grab onto false religions and cults. And, and really just be miserable. In fact, wars were started and fought under the name of faith because of deception. And so we have to be very, very careful and diligent. And we're probably not at that level where we're joining a cult or a false religion. I can tell you today, if you're not sure, being here, this is not a cult. This is not a false religion. This is the truth. This is, we preach the gospel. We preach the cross, the one and only Son of God, Jesus himself. So you're in the right place. Praise God. And if you're online, you're in the right place, too, watching us. Um, but there's still, if we, if we just get the truth, just get off just a little bit, it can easily put us in bondage, it can put us in fear, and it can just make us miserable. The good news is, is that Jesus came so that we could know the truth. In fact, my text verse for today is the same as it was last week, and I'm going to read it. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, if you would, please, just in honor of reading the word of God together. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen. But these are the words of Jesus in John 8, verse 31. It says, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth. And everybody, I want you to read this with me together. Let's say this last part together. And the truth will set you free. Amen and hallelujah. But you know, if the truth sets us free, that means the lies put us in bondage. So, we're our, just because we, we have an understanding or we've read the truth doesn't mean we're free. Jesus said, You have to be my disciples. You have to hold to my teaching if you really want to live free. Today, I want to talk to you about the lies of faith. Would you pray with me, please, we'll, as we enter into this time together? Father, we love you today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is your word that changes us, it is your truth that sets us free. God, I pray you'd help us to hold on to your teachings today and as we move forward after this time we have together. Jesus, we love you, we thank you for your spirit, Holy Spirit, come, you are welcome in this place. Come and have your way in each one of our lives. Let our hearts be good soil today that your word can produce fruit for your glory and for our good. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and everyone said amen. Amen. God bless you, you can be seated. So if you grew up in church, Um, you probably know someone, maybe you have someone in your family whose beliefs were maybe a little bit wonky, right? But they believed in them wholeheartedly. And it wasn't really the truth, it was just kinda just off just a little bit. In fact, as I said, I was a child of the 80s and 90s. Back then, TVs were still new enough that the many, many people in the church felt like TVs were from the devil. and If you had a TV, mm mm-mm, there was no redeeming it, it was the devil's box. And so uh, you weren't supposed to have one in many churches. And my grandparents actually uh, adhered to this belief and they were staunch in their beliefs. And uh, unfortunately my parents didn't follow that same belief. And so we had a TV, but every time my grandparents were coming to the house, I have memories of my mom grabbing the TV and running and taking it back to the bedroom. (laughs) You laugh because you probably had the same thing, some of you, right? because they didn't wanna dishonor their parents, but at the same time, they didn't really line up with those beliefs. The good news is my grandparents uh, came around before they died, they had a TV, and they watched a lot of game shows and baseball games. But, uh, but they were so staunch in those beliefs, they believed it, and they, they were actually, um, it, they pushed those beliefs on others because they believed it so wholeheartedly to be true. And you know, it's based on our perception sometimes, we have beliefs that are really lies that we're just clinging on to because of passion that we have or an upbringing or perception that we have, it doesn't necessarily line up or hold any water when it comes to the Word of God. And you know, in a season that we're in now, like COVID over the last year and a half or so, and the strain that that has put on us, what that has done is helped us to find out what we really believe, right? I mean, how many times have you thought to yourself or questioned like, where is God in this pandemic? What do I believe about God in a pandemic? Do I believe that he's still faithful in the midst of a time like this? And if I do, is my life backing that up? Does my life display that I really believe God's faithful even in the midst of a difficult season? You know, or what do I believe about the character of God or what I believe about what my role is even serving him in this season? The things we really believe actually come to the surface in times of crisis. Because it's easy to say when things are going well, yeah, God's faithful, praise God. He is so good. He's good all the time. When, you know, you just got a raise and you just had a grandbaby and everything, nothing could be better, you know? And it's easy to say, talk about the goodness of God, but can you talk about and believe in the goodness of God during a difficult season like we're in now? Because that really shows where we are in our heart. Because see, here's the deal, church. God has a plan for your life. We know that, right? The Bible's very clear. God has good plans for us. But you know who else has a plan for your life is the enemy. He's got a plan, and his plan is very specific too. And he has goals for your life. And you know what, if, if I were the devil, which I'm not, but if I was, then my first goal would be to keep you from salvation, right? I'd wanna make sure you didn't get become part of the family of God, I'd wanna make sure that you did not believe the truth of the gospel, that you did not commit your life to Jesus, receive his forgiveness for your sins, and walk as a child of the king. That'd be my first goal, but, If something happened to where you did, which many of us in this room have made that decision, we're committed to Jesus, and you decided to walk that out, it doesn't mean that the enemy's plan for you has completely failed. It just means he has to shift how he plans for you. He doesn't stop. In fact, in many ways, he ramps up what he's doing in our life once we become a follower of Jesus. Because here's the deal. He wants us to never have a healthy life of faith. He doesn't want us to be thriving and healthy and energetic and active in our faith. Because if we're saved and somebody gets saved, the enemy lost one person. But if we have an active, vibrant, healthy faith and a fear of God, then that faith is going to not only affect myself, it's going to affect my family it has a potential to affect my coworkers. It can affect my neighbors. It can affect my friends. It can affect people all over my life. So whereas with salvation, one person is gone from the kingdom of darkness, if I have a healthy, vibrant faith, it could have scores more of an effect if I'm strong and if I'm walking out this life of faith that God wants me to walk out. So we have to understand and recognize that the enemy is throwing lies at us all the time to try to get us to not live this life of faith that God wants us to live. And if he could do that, if he can squash us, you know, the enemy's not afraid of a Christian that's not really walking out their faith according to the word of God. You're not even worth his time, really. He's gonna gonna deal with those that are affecting his kingdom because that's what really upsets him. So we have to be very diligent and, and understanding and careful to know that those lies are coming at us all the time. And so what I've done today is I wanna give you a few of the lies that I think we as Christians believe that the enemy will throw at us. And these are... I think three of the most toxic lies that I think we as followers of Jesus believe. Obviously, there's dozens, probably hundreds of lies that, that the church can, can struggle with when it comes to our faith. But these three, I think, are, are really prevalent and relevant in our life. And the first one is the lie that if I have faith, I won't doubt. Nobody in here is susceptible to that one, right? None of us really have any doubt, so it's not anything to worry about. Um, no, that's absolutely not true. In fact, it's something that everybody to some degree has to deal with in our faith. But for some reason, we in the church have kind of put out this, this vibe that doubt is the ultimate act of treason in the faith. That we can't really be transparent when it comes to doubt because you, know, you can easily start thinking or feeling like people are looking at you a certain way like, well, how can you possibly doubt? You have the Holy Spirit. If you are born again, blood bought follower of Jesus, and he has put his spirit in you, the spirit of God leads us to all truth. Well, doubt would keep us from the truth. So if you really love Jesus, you won't doubt, right? That's the lie that we so often believe. And what it does is it keeps us from really being able to be transparent, be real with where we are in our walk, because we believe that if I really have faith that I won't doubt. And so it's something you don't, hear about much in the church. In fact, you know, as a, as a pastor, I love it because I get texts, emails, calls all the time, pretty much every week of people that just need prayer for something. You know, whether it's health or whether it's finances or whether it's, there's a certain, there's a certain uh, category of things you're allowed to ask prayer for, but then there's some that you're not allowed to in our own minds, we, we can't be this transparent to really ask, and doubt is one of those biggest ones. I very seldom, in fact, I can remember one time one person ever asked me to pray for them because they were having doubts in their faith. Other than that, we all seem to have it together, right? Yet we none of us really have it together. If I had some truth serum in here and I said, okay, everybody raise your hand that has struggled or is struggling with doubt in their faith, every hand in the building would go up including mine because it's something we all have to deal with. But we believe the lie that in our faith we can't doubt and so what we do is we, we keep it bottled up and what it does is it puts us in bondage and causes us to live condemned because we feel like we're the only one struggling with it. How many times have you thought that? You know, how, many, how many areas of faith are there where you think you're the only one struggling with it, but if you actually would go and talk to 10 people, nine of those people are struggling with it too. But the enemy wants to isolate us and keep us from really being able to get victory in this. And I wanna set you free today that doubt is not the unpardonable sin. Doubt in your faith doesn't make you a hypocrite. Now, we don't stay in that place of doubt. But when those feelings come, we are human beings. To say you'll never doubt is to to say you'll, you'll never yawn. You know, it just happens depending on the circumstances sometimes. Now we can, as we grow in our faith, we can get to more and more to where we recognize it quicker and quicker and we take it to the foot of the cross. But it doesn't mean we don't have to deal with it. My favorite flawed follower of God and of Jesus was John the Baptist. Because this man had it, he had every advantage in the book. You know, in fact, the Bible says that he was filled with the Spirit from birth. Now, as we know, when Jesus went back to heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit back down to this earth, Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost, right? And the Holy Spirit is available to every one of us that will call ourselves followers of Jesus. When we get saved, we get the Holy Spirit, right? But before that, it was only a select few that were actually filled with the Holy Spirit. You see a few people in the Old Testament and you see a few in the Gospels. One of them was John the Baptist. It says he was filled from birth. In fact, when he was in the womb and Elizabeth got close to Mary, when Jesus was in her womb, it says that he leapt in her womb because he sensed what was there, that it was, the, it was God himself. And so he had the Holy Spirit. Not only that, he got to baptize Jesus. And it says when he baptized him that the Holy Spirit descended on him in a way that was visible, because it says it was like a dove. So John actually saw the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus. And then the icing on the cake was that God spoke from heaven and said, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. Leaving no doubt who Jesus was to John in that moment. Well, then John eventually gets put in prison because because of the fact that he served God and lived a life of integrity and honor, and ends up in prison and he's in prison, and what happens? A little bit of doubt starts creeping in. Doesn't say that in the Word, but we know from what happens that he's struggling with some doubt because he ended up sending his disciples to Jesus to say, hey Jesus, are you the one we're waiting for, or should we look for somebody else? I mean, you read that and you go, "Uh, what? You literally saw him get filled with the Holy Spirit, and you heard God speak. I mean, this is before they had loud, booming speaker systems where someone could have faked it you know this was real and yet john was doubting in that situation because it was in a crisis and that's sometimes can be human nature now i'll get back to john in a minute but i want to share a story or show you a story out of the word of how we are how we are meant to respond when we have doubt in our life like what god would want from us and it's in mark 9 and this is where jesus is actually walking with some of his disciples and he come up on a crowd of people arguing and in the crowd are some of his other disciples. So there's, they're in there arguing. Jesus gets up to him and he says, Hey, what's going on? And this father comes out of the crowd and said, Oh, Jesus, you know, I brought my son to your disciples to deliver him from this demon because he gets, this demon seizes him and throws him down and he starts foaming at the mouth and he, he re- becomes rigid and it's horrible. And I asked your disciples to cast him out and they couldn't do it. So let's see what Jesus re- says. Here's how he responds in Mark 9 19. He says, "O oh, unbelieving generation. Some versions actually say faithless generation. In other words, "O oh, you bunch of doubters. Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, this is the doubt coming out of the father, basically saying, I don't know if he can, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. <laughs> and then Jesus responds, uh, if you can. <laughs> basically, do you know who I am, right? Said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, Help me overcome my unbelief. So something very interesting is happening here. Jesus is actually frustrated, which is good to know that God himself can be frustrated, so that means I can be frustrated too, right? Um, Especially if it's a godly frustration. Uh, But Jesus is frustrated here, he responds to his disciples, he says, oh, how long do I have to stay with you? Like, he's frustrated that they couldn't drive out this demon after having been with him. And then, He's frustrated with the father because he says, you know, if you can do something, he's, you could tell by now he doesn't really believe it because they weren't able to do it before. And Jesus says, if you can. Like he's, he's saying, that, that's, that's frustrating to think that you, would, that you would respond in that way. But something happens here. Jesus still, and I, I, don't, I didn't read that part of the verse, but Jesus actually did still heal this son. He delivered this son from this demon. And it seems to me that the, the father's response When Jesus said, if you can, he said, everything's possible for you who believe. His response after that seems to move Jesus. He says, I do believe, help me in my unbelief. What the father is saying here, he's saying, I have some belief, I believe a little bit, but I don't think I believe enough. I still have a lot of doubt. Will you help me not to doubt? And this, Jesus responds to this by delivering this boy from this demon. Now, would Jesus have done it anyway without the father's response? Possibly. Jesus did a lot of things just out of compassion, but but it seems to me from the context here that he actually responded to this man's response in saying, help me. What Jesus wants us to do, it's not not horrible for us to have doubt, but our doubt needs to lead us to Jesus, not away from him. It needs to draw us to him. I don't know why Joy said this when she shared a couple weeks ago, Like one of the best prayers you can pray is four letters, help. I mean, we have a heavenly father that wants to give us good gifts, that wants to bless us, that wants to heal us, that wants to set us free. We have to be willing to come to him and say, help me. I don't know what it is about us as Christians that when we get to that place of prayer, all of a sudden we start talking King James and acting like we have everything together, right? And God's just saying, I just want you to be honest. This this father says, I got a little belief, but I know it's not enough. I want this much, help me. And Jesus responds. John the Baptist, when he was in the prison and he was struggling with doubt, he didn't sit there and just wallow in his doubt. He couldn't get to Jesus himself, but he sent his disciples to Jesus. And when they said, Jesus, are you the one or do we need to look for somebody else? Jesus responded by encouraging John. He said, you go back and you tell John, the lame are walking, the blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, the dead are raised to life. You go tell them the kingdom of God has come on earth. And so those disciples went back and assuredly told John and encouraged him because John reached out to Jesus. He brought his doubt to Jesus. And when we bring our doubt to Jesus, he will lead us in the truth. But we have to be willing to do that. We can't assume that because we have doubt that we are messed up or that we've done something that's unpardonable. I think it was James Dobson that said, it's the right of every Christian to walk through the halls of doubt to get to rooms of truth. That's beautiful. Like we're all gonna end up in those halls of doubt sometimes. But for the love of God, don't stop there and sulk in the hallway. Keep going till you get to that room of truth. We will get there if we trust Jesus, amen? All right, the second lie is the lie that a little apathy never hurt anyone. Nothing wrong with a little bit of apathy in life, right? Now, this is something we would never say out loud, and I don't know if it's probably worded this way, but the fact of the matter is there's a lot of apathy in the church, and there's a lot of not being done about it. We're, we're getting too accustomed to being lazy in our faith, which means that we believe that that's okay. You know, and I know COVID-19 has accelerated it, because you know, there's even in the church, there's just so much we couldn't do over the last year and a half. There's so much we wanted to do that I can't tell you how many events, how many get-togethers, how many gatherings we've had to cancel over the last year and a half. And so you can easily, if you're not careful, even in vocational ministry, get to where you just get kinda lazy. Like, well, God, you know, you're know, you just gonna have to do your thing. And we're just gonna keep trying to be as faithful as we can. But So COVID-19 has accelerated it for us. And even for you, you might've thought, well, you know, the church ain't doing anything right now. You know, over the last while, there's been times where we weren't doing any, we didn't have church here, we haven't do it online. And, and you feel like, well, there's nothing I could do. And maybe you equate church with your faith, so you just kinda have got back, maybe you have just got lazy in your faith. And this is something that is an epidemic in the church. And it was before COVID, if I'm honest. There's too much apathy. There's too much not being expectant or anticipating in our faith and wanting to move forward and and looking for opportunities to take that next step in my faith. Like, I don't wanna stay on the same step I've been on for the last five years. I wanna take the next step and the next step and the next step because I wanna continue to grow in my faith because I want my love for Jesus to grow and I want my effectiveness to grow and I wanna help build the kingdom of God but we've believed a lie that eh, little apathy is okay. It's not really that big a deal. And I wanna speak to the men for a minute in the building and the ones online, because men, for whatever reason, we are wired in such a way that makes us much more susceptible to apathy than our counterparts. Maybe it's because we tend to be a little more laid back at times, a little less uh, emotional, dri- emotionally driven, we like to be consistent and constant but what that can end up being in our life and what we see in the church is that men are incredibly apathetic in the church and men somewhere along the somewhere along the way we have lost our way we have lost our way where we have not been the leaders in the faith that God has called us to be there is no place for apathy in the faith of a man of God and for some reason we have we have determined that a passionate loving pursuit of Jesus and growing in our faith is not very manly. I don't know where that came from, it probably came from the enemy because he's convinced so many men that, eh, it's just not, you know, I sent my wife to church, but it's not really my thing, right? And we've just become so lazy and God help me, but we are so passionate about our football team or about our hunting or about our fishing, but yet when it comes to talking about having passion for Jesus, kind of one of those things we don't really want to do any pursuing or we don't we we just kind of sit back we have kind of that you know we just want to experience the high points of faith I, yeah I want to go to heaven I believe that but other than that I'm kind of you know I'm just kind of busy and we can get so focused on career we can get focused on so many other things but let me tell you something man the manliest mass, most masculine thing you can do is love Jesus and live a life of worshiping Jesus amen And let me tell you something guys, the church desperately needs you. I'm not talking about New Hope, I'm talking about the church. The church in the Western world has been shrinking since long before COVID. And a lot of that is because men are not willing to be committed and bought in to faith in Jesus and really leading the charge. I get so frustrated hearing hearing so many wives saying like, they feel like they're just dragging their husband to church. You know, they're just dragging them along and just they're hoping and praying that, you know, one day they'll catch a fire and really get excited about Jesus. And then you ask some questions, you realize, man, they're really passionate about their their career. They're really passionate about the Bulldogs. They're really passionate about going fishing every weekend. Right? And I'm not against any of that. I might be a little bitter because my team lost yesterday and our season's over. But uh, (laughs) there's nothing wrong with liking those things, but man. We have so much energy to have passion about those things, but so little for our relationship and our faith in Jesus. And you know, I I know we all want greater faith, but it does not come without expectancy. We've got to be expectant if we want our faith to grow. And I know maybe we're a little scared to be expectant, maybe you've been disappointed a few times in your faith and so it makes you a little gun shy, a little hesitant to really expect and anticipate God to do great things in your life and through you and in you, but I'm telling you it doesn't happen without that expectancy in our life. We've all been disappointed, even with God. We've all been disappointed with God. Every single one of us. And, and you could say that because disappointment with God doesn't mean God did anything wrong. It just means that our expectations weren't met. And us being humans, sometimes we have expectations even in faith that we think are God's will, but it's really our will, and when it doesn't happen, we become disappointed. I, I get disappointed with God. It doesn't mean I don't love him or I think he messed up. It just means I wish he would have done it my way. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm transparent enough to admit that. I really want God to do things my way sometimes. You know, I mean, when I, most of my prayers, God, have your way, do your thing. But then when I get to my list, I'm like, well, but I'd like you to do this and this and this. You know, and sometimes with that comes some disappointment, but that can't stop our expectancy. It can't stop us from always driving forward, always pushing forward and not allowing apathy to rule the day in our life. And you know, we all know giants in the faith that we would say, man, that person just has so much faith. They're so faith-filled, right? Well, those people didn't, have not skirted around and never had disappointment in their life. It just means when they had disappointment, they didn't allow that to derail them or cause them to be apathetic. They maybe used it to, to catapult them into a place of really trusting God. So having a lot of faith and living a life of faith isn't about never having disappointment. It's about not letting the disappointment derail you in your life. And a true faith is really active. It's not, not only is it not apathetic, it's active. If, if greater faith doesn't come without expectancy, it doesn't stay without activity. Faith is active. They are, they, are, they work together. They are partners. There's, there's, nothing, there's no way to have faith without your faith being uh, evident through our deeds. In fact, James says it very, very well. And you've probably read this many times yourself in James 2.18, He says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So what James is saying here is that if you have faith, there will be action to go with it. Our actions don't save us. Our actions are the evidence that we are saved. Because belief will always require, it will always uh, lead us into action in our life. There's no such thing as believing in God and not having any action to our faith. In fact, James says it very clearly. You gotta love James, man, he did not pull punches. He said, basically, if you just believe and don't do anything, you're no better than a demon, because they believe too. Believing is about if you really believe that Jesus is who He says He is, and that He is the hope of the world, that the gospel is the hope of this world, then we would have to take that and let it infect our lives, affect our lives, and make us live a life for Him, not for ourselves. There's no other way around it. We're deceived if we think I could just be saved, just sit back and just cross my arms and just be a spectator. That's not how it works, because that's not real faith. You know, in, uh, Mar- in Matthew and Luke, Jesus talks about the, the, uh, the person that's delivered from a demon. And the demon goes out in the wilderness tries to find rest and can't find it. And he comes back and sees the house. The person is swept clean and empty and you know the demon's gone, so the house has been cleaned up. And he goes back, he gets seven of his friends who are more evil than him. And they go back to this guy and this guy's worse off than he was before. And you have to understand this parable he's saying because what he's saying is the enemy's not afraid of an empty house. He's not afraid of an empty house, which one tells me that I need to be full of the Spirit. I need to be continually filled with the Spirit, as Paul says, because the Spirit, the enemy is afraid of the Spirit being in the house, but he's also not afraid of a dormant faith. Because you can, you can make the, the illustration there that the empty house is about a faith that's just, I believe, but I'm not doing anything. And the enemy is not afraid of that at all. He's not afraid of an inactive Christian because it really doesn't show what you believe if you're not letting your actions line up with your faith. Uh, Paul said in Galatians 6, nine, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, he says, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will, everyone say we will. We will, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Now, look at this verse closely. Because I think many times we want to reap a harvest, but we don't want to really continue in doing good. We want to just reap the harvest without actually putting in the work. We don't want to have the active active faith. And I know there's that, you know, there's churches, preachers, denominations that have gone over all the way over here and said, you know, you got to do all these things to really be saved. You know, you're, you got to, do this list of things, you gotta live a certain way if you wanna be saved, and that's, that's going the other extreme, but at the same time, Paul's very clear that doing good is part of the life of faith, okay? And he's not about talking about doing good to yourself. We're all good to ourselves, right? I, I, we have a self-preservation innate in all of us. We're all good to ourselves. Sometimes it can be toxic, but we think we're being good to ourselves at least. He's talking about doing good for others. He's talking about living out your faith in such a way that the world can see it. That others in your life can see it. Now I know we're in a season of weariness. I know a lot of people are very, very weary right now. This pandemic has has worn many of us down. And if I'm honest and fully transparent right now, I, I over the last couple months especially, I have, I have been pouting. <laughs> in fact, I was just talking to Joy a couple of days ago, and I, was, and I just kind of had this revelation. I was like, wow, I've been spiritually pouting the last couple months, and. Uh, I got fully convicted of it. In fact, just yesterday, again, guys, I, I wish I could just stand up here and say, guys, I got this all figured out. Just follow me as I follow Christ, everything will be fine. You know. But I, I'm not, I'm, I'm on this journey just like you guys are. And I have the same struggles as all of, we're in this together, right? And I'm thankful that God has anointed me to be standing behind this pulpit, but uh, I, I don't have it all figured out either. And I, all, what I know is I love Jesus, and I love his word, and I love sharing his word, and I love expanding His kingdom. So, but that being said, I had to have a little come to Jesus meeting yesterday, me and Him. And uh, I was in my office for a long time, just praying. And man, I had I had such an amazing time with Him because I just I was just being honest, but I was also repenting for pouting. And man, I just felt the weariness just kind of lift off of me, and I felt so good. And that doesn't always happen that quickly, you know, where you just say a quick prayer and God just you know it's all better. But for me, yesterday, it was just a matter of me. I needed to release some things. And releasing those things brought back what I feel is the energy and the joy of even what I'm doing today. And that's how God is for us. But we are weary. A lot of people are weary and struggling right now. But I can tell you today, the way to deal with weariness is not to just sit back and wait and wait till this pandemic's over. Because when COVID's gone, there's something else that will come in that will make us weary too. We live in a fallen world, guys. So that's going, those things are gonna come. Jesus said it, those things are gonna come. Offenses are gonna come. In this world, you're gonna have trouble. I mean, these are the words of Jesus, you know? So we can't, our our attack against weariness can't be to sit back and hope and wait or to be apathetic. It's about being active. It's about not growing weary and doing good because at the proper time, we will reap a harvest. And I can tell you from experience that we serve a God that loves to let us reap a harvest. He loves to show himself faithful. He loves to show himself true. He loves to show himself trustworthy. He loves to fill up his people. He loves to empower us and anoint us to do what he's called us to do. And he will do it, but we have to not grow weary and not stop doing good and being apathetic in our life. Amen? Amen. All right, third and finally. The last lie of the day. It's always good to have a backup plan. To play it safe. Play it safe in your faith. Man, this is one of the enemy's favorite lies, guys. Just have a backup plan. Like, don't be, you know, don't get, don't be a radical Christian, you know? Like, even society doesn't really have an issue with us having faith. You ever notice that? Like, they don't even have an issue with Jesus as a person. They have an issue with Jesus as the Savior. They have an issue with him as Lord. They have an issue with, they don't have an issue with Christians that say they're Christians. They have an issue with Christians who are fully bought in. They have an issue with us that are completely all in on Jesus and on what his will is for our life. But the, the half in, half out, the lukewarm riding the fence, society doesn't really care about them because you're not really doing anything, right? But Jesus says, I want you to be all in. Christians playing it safe and having a backup plan and dipping our toes in the water, but not really committing, we're actually hindering the gospel. That's why Jesus gets so angry when he says, if you're on the fence, I'm gonna spew you out of my mouth because you're actually hindering the gospel because people see it. People see us when we're on the fence and they see that we're not really doing much. We're just saying a few things and, and having a, uh, maybe having a couple of different political stances and things like that, but not really living the life of love that the Bible has called us to live. So living this half-hearted life of faith is really hindering the gospel. And so many of us, I think we just can struggle with this because we want the blessings of faith. We want the blessings of God. We want the the good truths out of his word to be evident in our life, but with minimal commitment or with partial commitment, right? And you might say, well, you know, I got family, I got a job, I got all these other things going on. That has nothing to do with your commitment level to Jesus because you can be committed to Jesus at your job. You could be committed to Jesus with your family. There's always room, always room for what matters to us. Always room. It's amazing how we just day after day after day, no matter how busy we get, we always find time to eat. It's amazing. I've never heard anyone say like, man, I haven't eaten in six days because I just haven't had time. No one, because it matters to us. So if we're committed to Jesus, It will permeate every area of our life. It doesn't mean you have to quit your job. It doesn't mean you have to leave your family. It means it will permeate those areas and be part of who you are in everything you do. That no matter where you are, what you're doing, you take Jesus with you. You take your commitment with you to everywhere you go and whatever you're part of in your life. It's a cheap counterfeit of the gospel when we are partially committed to Jesus. And I can tell you there is nowhere in the gospels where we're being partially committed to Jesus will get you anything but in trouble. Seriously, there's nowhere that you will see where a safe, convenient faith will do anything but actually end up being a hindrance in your life. And it's a hindrance to the gospel because a safe, convenient faith repels the lost. It repels people far from God. You know, the mission of this church is to reach those far from God and to lead people to their next step in a God-first life. If we're gonna reach people far from God, we have to be fully committed to Jesus. Not fully committed to new hope, fully committed to Jesus. And then secondly, committed to new hope. (laughs) That'll help everything, right? But that is what draws people to Jesus is seeing the full commitment, the risky faith. We are meant to have a risky faith. Jesus said if you're gonna, he basically tells us, if you're gonna get in the game, I want you all in, not on the sidelines, I want you in the game. I want you to be part of what we're doing. God is looking for followers who will be all in. And it, And for those that would say, well, I just can't get there, scripture shows us that we're actually setting ourselves up for failure by being just partially in or having a backup plan, so to speak, in our faith. In fact, in John six, uh, Jesus is shows us that he doesn't sugarcoat anything. And uh, this is the chapter where he feeds the 5,000 with, five loaves and two fish, right? Great, and one of the most incredible miracles in all the Bible, because they say there's 5,000 men, so that, that doesn't include women and children. A good chance there could've been 10,000 people there. They don't know, but a lot of people, and he fed them with a couple baskets full of food. Incredible miracle, and the people there knew it was a miracle because the next day, he, he was across the lake, and the people found out where he was, and those same people went across the lake to find him and to talk to him. And they said, "Hey Jesus, you know we we want some more of that bread." And Jesus starts uses the opportunity to talk to them about how he is the bread of life. He says, "You know, I am the bread of life." And he says, "If you eat my bread, you'll never be hungry again." And they said, "Oh, that's the bread we want. Give us that bread." You know, and they didn't really understand. So Jesus went on to explain, and and he basically was telling them, like, "Listen," he says, "You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want to be part of me," which is obviously metaphorical. And maybe these people didn't understand or or, well, they actually said this is a very difficult word. How can anyone receive this word? And the Bible actually says that they turned away from him. Many of his disciples turned away at that time and stopped following him because they couldn't take it. And at the end of the day, what it's about is Jesus was saying, listen, don't just come to me for what I can give you. You come to me and be all in. I want you to be committed to me. I want you to live for me. Your life is not gonna be your own anymore. Now it's gonna be mine. You're gonna completely partake of me and your life is gonna be found in me and in nowhere else. And what it did was it exposed these people's hearts because they're like, well, no, I don't want that. I want some bread. That's all, I'm just looking for some bread, Jesus. And you know what? Good chance these guys might even had a backup plan. They might've had a a horse and carriage in the back that had a bunch of bread on it, just in case the whole bread thing with Jesus didn't work out, right? And Jesus says, this is how it needs to be. And it says they walked away because they really only were in it for what they could get from Jesus. But then I love it because he turns to his disciples. And in verse uh, John 6, 67, he says this. You don't wanna leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Can I translate this for you in the uh, the Reagan version, Peter says, I don't have a backup plan. I'm all in. I'm not sitting on the shore, I'm in the water. I've given everything to follow you, Jesus. He says, where else would I go? And church, that's where we need to be in our faith, where we would say, if Jesus would call us to whatever it might be, that we wouldn't turn and say, well, no, I can't, that's too much for me to ask, but that we would say, where else would I go? Where else could I go? You are the one that has the words of eternal life. How could I ever do anything but serve you? But I think in the, especially in American Christianity, we've kind of made it to where it's about convenience. It's about like what, what's in it for me and I'll give a little bit. I might give you some, Jesus, but you know if it starts to get hard, I'm gonna pull back. When really when it gets hard, that's when we need to jump into the deep end because that's where we find the anchor of our souls is in the deep end. We don't need an anchor if we're in the shallow. You only need an anchor if you're out there where you can't get it on your own and you can't do it on your own. And that's who he wants to be for us. I love the story of Elisha in 1 Kings, where, and you I know most of you have heard this and have, have uh, seen, seen the, the effect even on your own life and, and personalized it in your own life, but. So Elisha is out plowing with his ox, and Elijah comes to him and throws his cloak over him, basically saying, hey, you're, you're gonna succeed me. You're gonna be my successor. I'm, you're gonna be my protege. Basically, you're gonna follow me. And uh, Elisha, it says that he took the plow and he cut it up, and it was wood, he cut it up and he burned it while he sacrificed the ox and cut them up and put it on the fire so he could make a meal for everybody in his family there in his village where he was. And what that says is that Elisha was getting rid of his safety net. He was getting rid of his backup plan. He said, I am all in. And now we know, biblically, we know that Elisha actually performed at least twice as many miracles as Elijah, okay? Now was that because of what he did there? Maybe, maybe not. But the fact of the matter is that God blessed him and he knew that he was all in. It would have been very, Easy for him to have said, oh, sure, okay. Uh, Give me a minute, Elijah. And he goes and he puts the ox in the trailer uh, and the plow in the shed just in case this whole prophet thing doesn't work out. I've heard that Israelites don't really like prophets a whole lot, so just in case I have to run for my life, I got something to do so I can make a living back here, right? And no one would have begrudged him for it. But God blessed him, and I believe it was because of his heart in that moment that he said, I am all in. I'm, taking, I'm getting rid of my safety net. I'm getting rid of my backup plan. There's no dip in my toes. If I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this. And I believe with all my heart, this is the commitment level Jesus wants for each one of us. Not that we would quit our jobs, not that we would throw, get rid of everything we own and give all our money away. I'm not saying that, he might ask you to do that. Wouldn't be outside of the character of God. But just to have that commitment level that God, no matter what comes down the pike, I am fully committed to you, fully, fully committed to you. And I don't have a backup plan. I can tell you, church, I don't have a backup plan. There's nothing that, could, that I could imagine could happen in my life that would cause me to say, oh, you know what, I gave this whole faith thing a try or this full commitment to Jesus thing a try, I'm gonna, I'm gonna back it on up and kinda go do my own thing. Because I believe, I feel like Peter, where would I go? Where would I go? I've experienced your goodness in such an incredible way. I've experienced your love, your power, your blessing, your provision in my life. Where else, who is going to do that better than you do it? Who? I'd love to know who this person is because they don't exist. You're not gonna do it better than he does it for you if we trust him. But we don't get to experience that if we're not in. And I could tell you, we miss out on a lot of the provision, a lot of the blessing, a lot of the anointing of God in our life because we're just not willing to go all in. It's a scary place to go. But our faith should scare us sometimes. If your faith's not scaring you any ever, it's not, you're not doing it right. Because we should all be scared at times, taking the next steps of faith in our life. It should make us nervous sometimes. I guarantee you, Elisha had moments of thinking, man, those ox could have probably helped me out here. But he, was, he wasn't willing to do it. Wasn't willing to keep them. Living a life of faith means that we will have to leave things behind. I don't know what that is for you, but we will have to leave things. We can't take everything with us in this life of faith because Jesus requires it all. And before we're living in faith with him, we have a lot of things in our life that clutter up our life. And there's things Jesus might say, I want you to leave that. I want you to get rid of that. I want you to leave that alone. Don't bring that with you on this journey. And we have to be willing to do that but I can promise you from experience that he's a lot more than anything will ever leave behind and he's worth it, amen? Amen, well God bless you, would you stand with me and I'll pray for us. And uh, if you would just hang with me for a second, I wanna mention one thing after we pray too. But uh, I wanna pray for you today and you're welcome to come up to the altar if you'd like and and pray here as well. If you wanna come spread out across here too, it's up to you but you can stay in your seat. just, Just to encourage you to respond in some way, just to receive this this prayer, church. Make this your own. You can pray yourself as I'm praying, but make this your own. If you wanna lift up your hands, you wanna bow your head, you wanna kneel at your seat, whatever it is, let's respond to the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you today for your word because we know it is truth. We thank you for your truth, Lord, and it is your truth that sets us free. God, we know the enemy has a plan for our life, but I pray that you would open our eyes to see what that is, that you would expose the deception, you would expose the lies that he has tried to perpetuate in our lives, Lord. We know that he loves nothing more than to stifle us as believers, but God, we wanna come today and stand on your truth. Lord, we wanna stand on who you are. Lord, we don't don't wanna believe the lies that we'll never have any doubt if we're a Christian. Lord, we don't want to believe the lies that apathy is no big deal or believe the lie that I can have a backup plan or a safety net in this walk of faith. But God, that we would be all in, that we would be all in on you, God. That our lives would be all for you. Lord, that everything we do in our job, with our family, with our friends, and our leisure time, that even in the midst of all those things, Lord, that our motive, the thrust of our life would be to glorify you that we would even seek to say, God, how can I glorify you today in my job? How can I glorify you in my friendships? How can I glorify you in my leisure? How can I glorify you in anything in my life? Lord, that that would be our heart today. Lord, would you change our hearts? Would you make us more like you? Make us more like you, Jesus. God, help us to be more committed to you. God, I pray for all the men Lord, that you would help us to reject apathy, to reject this idea that real men aren't really passionate about Jesus. But Lord, that you would give us all the men a revelation. Open our eyes, Lord, to see that the the most masculine thing we can do is to give everything we are for you and for your glory and to pursue you and live this life of faith that will glorify you, God. Lord, we repent where we have been selfish and apathetic and where we've allowed doubt to just have its way in our life. Lord, we wanna bring that doubt to the foot of the cross today. And we trust you, Lord, that you will lead us to places of truth. Hallelujah. Father, we love you. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your wonderful love in our lives, Lord God. We bless you today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, and amen. Praise God, thank you Jesus. Let's praise God with a hand clap offering one more time. Thank you Lord.